Uh, last night we talked, just brief review, we talked about the, um, uh, the whole general notion of, of, of vocation or calling. We talked a little bit about um, how that got developed then uh, through the history of the church in a very brief overview. And what happened by Luther's day, you had this sort of three-tier universe where you had God on top, and you had the people who had vocations, the monks, the nuns, the priests, because they took these vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And by virtue of those vows are a little bit closer to God than the rest of the folks who are keeping life running on the ground, which was a, don't get me wrong, a laudable task and in no way seen as a secular world, but certainly secondary to the main task, which was preparing for the next life. And Luther comes along with his revolution, and it is a revolution in grace where he says, wait a minute now, um, there's no way you can earn or merit by any means God's grace or forgiveness. Um, all are in need of God's grace or forgiveness. That includes the monk, the nun, the priest. What happens is that second level, um, the notion of vocation now gets shared with everyone. And everyone has a calling in life. And you're always called. 24-7, 365. You always have a calling of some kind. And, um, um, and therefore, what Luther's teaching did, his revolution did, it really ennobled. Let's say that again. It ennobled lay life. It gave lay life now a new significance that it had lacked before. And it was a revolution in society as well. Think about what happened as a result or in the wake of the Lutheran Reformation throughout much of Northern Europe in particular. Monasteries closed. The church owned 40% of the land, folks. 40% of the land. Um, think of what that means in terms of money, influence, power. And all of a sudden, Luther's especially in the 1520s and 1530s, getting letters from mayors. And we just closed the monastery in our town. And now we have all this money. And now people are fighting about it. What are we supposed to do with it? And in some cases, he was bold enough to give them advice. In other cases, he says, well, you know, I'm not a lawyer. You guys figure it out. I mean, kind of in a sense saying, you have a calling. You have a calling now to figure out what to do with that money. And uh, in many cases, he said, you know, build a school. Uh, and by the way, educate the women too. Don't educate just the men. It's another revolution in, 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 that came in the wake of the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, but to be, you know, just think of the, the, the socioeconomically what happened as a result of this teaching and vocation. Um, how it ennobled lay life at the family level. Um, now being a mother or a father or a grandparent was the very place God wanted you to be. Uh, there wasn't somewhere else holy that you could seek to be closer to God. So anyway, uh, the reverberations from this teaching, obviously it has great meaning, I think, for what, um, how we think about ourselves and our relationship to God and our relationship to our neighbor, but it had material consequences as well. And sorting this out was one of the main tasks, especially of that first and second generation of reformers. And so um, vocation, again, like I say, uh, um, the, the twin pillars of the Reformation are really justification and vocation. I don't think you can separate the two. You can't separate the two. They, 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 you can't talk about justification without talking about vocation. Otherwise, it becomes abstract and it's not justification anymore. Somehow it reaches all of us in our callings and in, in some sense it informs those callings. And we as preachers and teachers then are called to sort of sort that out and think about, well, what does that mean then? How do we help our people understand that without falling into the, into the trap of works righteousness as well? Luther always liked to say, you know, like the, the world's like a drunken peasant. Climbs up on one side of the horse and falls off on the other. You know, I mean, and, and it's... You know, he's right. It's hard to hard. This, this is, and this is our task to try to, uh, and, and of course, it's a task that's difficult, and it comes with a lot of suffering. It does. It does. That's, that's the other consequence of the gospel, is that uh, it's not a life of ease, and we all know that, uh, and uh, we often wish it weren't so, but um, there's, a, there's a real burden along with the joy. Yes, I can talk about joy. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the, the vocation of the preacher. And um, I, again, one of, in my work, what I do is I use Luther and the Reformation, and I use it as kind of a lens for thinking about what these various callings might mean. And so um, in my very famous book that I alluded to <laughs> yesterday... Which you all, of course, have on your shelves. No, but what I try to do in the book is use Luther as a, as a lens for thinking about what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a citizen, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
what it means to be a friend, what it means to be um, 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 a, a teacher, his sphere of work. He was called to be a professor at Wittenberg, and then also, of course, what it means to be a preacher as well. So today I'm going to attempt to show you, through the lens of Luther, what um, might be some insights with regard to the vocation of the calling of a preacher. And again, um, and as Adam mentioned earlier, I invite your comments. Stop me if I'm rolling too much. Hey, make this more clear. Or Tranvik, you're off base here. I'd like to take issue with that. Or what do you mean by that? Please, let's keep it as interactive as possible because um, you are not empty vessels needing to be filled. I know you have a lot of resources within yourselves as well and your backgrounds that can contribute to the conversation. So, the vocation of the preacher. This is actually from Roland Bainton commenting on Luther's preaching. On Saturday, he wrote what he intended to say. On Sunday, his students took down what he did say, and on Monday, he wrote out what he wished he'd said. <laughs> And that's pretty good. And I think that reflects in some ways, uh, certainly my experience as a preacher. How often have you gone back on Monday morning and gone, oh, can't believe I just said that, or I can't believe it was heard that way, or, you know, it's just, it's amazing. And, um, and of course, you get all that at the door, right? You get all the handshaking, handshaking, hand, nice, nice, nice. The one comment, what do you go and dwell on, right? I mean, yeah, the one comment, that's all it takes. Luther is a preacher. This is a wonderful painting, again, by Lucas Cranach. Cranach was Luther's good friend. He was also the mayor of Wittenberg, a uh, very influential person in the Reformation, the painter of the Reformation in many ways. And this is from the altarpiece in the city church. And, well, tell me what you see. Often, uh, by the way, I use art I'm, I'm no great interpreter of, I love art, but I'm no great interpreter of art at all. But it's amazing with my students, 18, 19, 20-year-old students, you put up great works of art and you sit back and you say, okay, tell me what you see. And it's, a, it's really a nice teaching tool I've discovered. And the insights that they have, and of course you realize why this is great art, because people do get drawn into and in interpreting a painting uh, in ways that are sometimes surprising. So this is a little unclear, but what do you see? He's pointing at the cross. You got Luther preaching. He's pointing at the cross. Yeah. Anything else? The cross stands at the yeah, it stands at the center of everything. Good. Yeah, nice. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. No, right. 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 Good. Good. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's an interesting feature of the painting. What's going on there? What do you think Chronic's trying to do? Chronic was a good Lutheran. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit. And I think, I think what he's trying to say is the Holy Spirit is what connects the preacher and the, and the people through the crucified Christ. And moreover, why would it be billowing in the middle of a church? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> but no, I think there's a suggestion it's alive, right? I mean, there, there's activity, there's it's movement. The spirit is alive and working in this congregation. Um, assuming it's not drafty. <laughs> yeah, and you, of course, you have a congregation there. Probably some of Luther's children are being painted there as well. Probably Catherine in the front, a little hard to see. Of course, Luther has the scripture open, his hand on the scripture. But even the, the full content of Scripture, of course, is the crucified and risen Christ. That's the center of Scripture. So Scripture, Luther's not pointing at Scripture, as important as it was to him. He's pointing at the center of Scripture, the crucified and risen Christ. Yeah. And this is then what was in front of people. Like I say, this is the social media of the 16th century when people came into Wittenberg and to the city church and they listened then and went to services. And there were services every day, Sunday morning, twice, Sunday afternoon. Every, there were preaching services Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday as well. Um, and it's not to say that they were all attended by all the citizens all the time, but this was a regular feature of their, of their experience of being uh, in church. 
Luther is a preacher, so let's unpack this a little bit. He was no stranger to the pulpit, that's for sure. The Reformation gave new attention to the pulpit. While preaching was not wholly neglected in the late Middle Ages, there was a tendency to focus on the Lord's Supper at the expense of the sermon. Luther's word-centered theology meant that the calling to preach now received a prominent role in worship. And again, the sermons, there were some very good preachers in the late Middle Ages in the time right before Luther. And certainly he read and knew them. Um, At the same time, for the most part, preaching was, if done at all, was certainly minimized. And sermons were often read and they were often moral exhortations or basically information. Um, The main feature of the Mass, of course, is the Eucharist, the very presence of Christ in the body and blood of Christ. That was the highlight. That was the reason people attended. And of course, the Lutheran tradition took a lot of that on as well. But um, as we know, for Luther, the sermon now receives a new emphasis. And so there's a big shift here. And again, what sometimes happens, I think, is that is that is again falling the drunken peasant falling off the horse, right? I mean, it's, it's not like we want to do this at the expense of the Eucharist. Their pulpit, font, and altar all need each other. It's a question of balance, but it was out of balance by Luther's day, and the attention was almost solely on the altar. And of course, this gave the church a lot of power as well, because the priest, by virtue of his ordination, had this. Um, indelible character, and on and on and on, and the hierarchy results. Luther's own vocation as a preacher occupied an enormous amount of his time. He took regular turns in the pulpit during his lengthy time at Wittenberg. He wasn't the preacher in Wittenberg. Johannes Buchenhagen was. He was the pastor in the, in the city, but Luther also was called to preach, and as you can say, uh, see, he, is, he preached probably over 4,000 sermons. We have about 2,300 of them. About 1,700 we don't, not, don't have, we've lost. Um, in 1528 alone, he preached over 195 times over a 145-day period. I mean, think about it. So, like I say, no stranger to the pulpit in uh, his calling as a preacher. And again, just briefly, and most of you probably know many of these details, but just to kind of get you acquainted so I don't assume too much, right? The timeline of Luther's life in 1506, he enters the monastery in 1505. In 1507, he's ordained to preach. He's called to preach and teach in Wittenberg in 1510. Seven years later, you have the pounding of the 95 Theses. And by the way, I think he did pound the Theses on the church door. It's big discussion about that. I think there's enough evidence to suggest that actually happened, but it is certainly worthy of debate. We're we're not absolutely sure. There's been some questions about that, though. Excommunicated in 1520, 1521, uh, married in 1525. But that period then, from 1510 till his death in 1546, 36-year period, he's preaching. He's preaching, preaching, preaching regularly. And his teaching is his preaching as well. I mean, he's really, in some ways, never out of the pulpit. So uh, we're going to look at a little bit of the qualities of Luther's sermons and his experience there in the pulpit. The core message from the beginning, Christ crucified and risen. So again, as Kyle beautifully illustrated, I think, in our devotions this morning, that's the center. That's what it's all about, Christ crucified and risen. In 1516, so this is a year before he posts, and he did post them, right? The 95 Theses. (laughs) And a year before, in 1516, this is some of the, just to give you some sense for how early on he's on to this, Christ crucified and risen as the center. This is something he wrote to a fellow monk, a year before the 95 Theses. He said, therefore, my dear... This monk was troubled. He was troubled in his conscience. He was worried about, um, about his relationship of faith. He was fearful of God, and Luther write, writes accordingly. Therefore, my dear brother, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him, and despairing of yourself, say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness, but I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is mine. Beware of aspiring to such purities, now saying to the monk, right, that you will be not looked upon as a sinner or to be one. For Christ dwells only in sinners. That's the great word of liberation. That's one of the words we're called to 
preach. Christ dwells only in quit trying to make of yourself something that you're not. God loves sinners. Get used to it. God's love for the unlovable. That's the point, right? Um, instead of get off this sort of progression where you're getting holier and holier and holier, whatever that might mean. Christ dwells only in sinners. Meditate on this love and you will see his sweet consolation. For why was it necessary for him to die if we can obtain a good conscience by our works and afflictions? So Luther, I mean, early on, right? This, that central sort of message. Christ dwells only in sinners. Christ died for, as Paul says in Romans 5, the ungodly. That is a radical statement. Luther's ringing the changes on that then. It's not about us. It's all about God. Luther's labors then in the church were directed toward the pastoral care, toward pastoral care, or what used to be called the cure of souls. I love that phrase, the cure of souls. It's as residents. Uh, it's old-fashioned language. You've got to explain it if you're going to use it. Don't get me wrong, but it works if you, if you do sort of unpack it. Above all, Luther was concerned about consciences burdened by the deceptive belief that any measure of human effort could make one right with God. I found real helpful. Do you guys know the work of John Pless at all? Some of you know John Pless's work? John, John Pless teaches at Fort Wayne in, in uh, Concordia seminary in the Missouri Synod branch of the Lutheran Church. And John's um, just right on the mark. His book called Martin Luther, Preacher of the Cross is really, really well done. I highly recommend it to you. But John goes through uh, the different phases of cure of souls. And he's an experienced confessor himself. Uh, John's a friend too, but, he, but he's, he's a good scholar and he's a great pastor. And I, I'd highly recommend that book. Um, if you want to take a look at some in-depth stuff with regard to Luther and the care of souls. The twin goals then of Luther's preaching, confrontation and comfort. Law and gospel might be another way to say it, but let's start out with the confrontation part and let's recognize that Luther was not shy about calling his congregation and his audience into question. You can see it right in the, um, well, another painting. This is a painting by Cronach. And of course, Cronach's the painting, the painter who's interpreting the Reformation. And again, what do you see here? The, this painting is, by the way, entitled Law and Gospel. <laughs> yeah, isn't that beautiful? So Law and Gospel. So you have Law on the left, Gospel on the right. What do you see in the Law section? You see Adam and Eve? Right. Demons, skeletons. Yeah, God did right. Jesus the judge, right? He's very distant. That's a good point. I never really thought of that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But hovering over everything, clearly in control, above the circle of the earth, huh? Yeah. Over here? Interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, you're right. It is Moses and the law, the Ten Commandments, hammering people with the law. Yeah, you do, right, right. Remember where the, when Moses raised the, what became then the sign of the American Medical Association, right? There's <laughs> 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 an irony in that, I guess, but anyway, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. The consequences of sin, though, right? The rebellion, Moses and the, and the Ten Commandments, and of course you have Adam being chased out of the Garden of Eden, um, harried by devil and death, sin, death, and the devil. Those, that's the, that's the regular then phrase then that gets used, okay? And so you have the law, and then you have on this side the gospel. What do you see? Yes, good. Pointing to the crucified Christ. Yeah, nice. Yes, the devil and the death are dead. They've been, they've been, they've been um, defeated by the Lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. You see the, the, the tomb being ripped asunder. Jesus being raised. Uh... Yeah. Here you see, pardon? 
Here? I don't see it, but maybe. Oh, oh, oh! The the, the Holy Spirit. But but there but there but there is but there is a cross there. Yeah, no, no, you're not seeing things, right? No, no, that's good. That's really good. I never noticed that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's not just about the salvation of souls. There are material consequences. Notice the tree, tree of life, huh? Yeah, true life. Nature itself is renewed. Hmm. Yeah, law, gospel. Again, great. It's a great, uh, great uh, teaching tool. Yeah, Eve. Eve is back here, right? Of course, there's a. Well, we can get into that, but the, unfortunately, there, the the two uh, um, possibilities for women in terms of representation were Eve and Mary, right? Either the the the, the temptress, and of course, that's a false reading, I think, of Genesis three, or your Mary, the the virgin. I mean, <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> Great, huh? Yeah, there's, there's, in case you didn't know, there's been mis- some misogyny in the Christian tradition. Oh my goodness. Confronting a worldly church, so we're back to confrontation, right? Law, gospel, we're focusing on the law now. How did Luther call people into question? How did he challenge them? What was the essence of the confrontation? I'm not going to go into great detail here, but um, here from the Luther. By the way, the Luther movie's a good teaching tool. If you, if you ever get a chance to, if you get a chance to use it. I mean, there's some things about it historically that are a little suspect. I don't mention it, but the, the scene about, of course, the, uh, the suicide and the burial of the suicide in sacred ground. There's no evidence there's anything like that. But, 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 you know, Hollywood took some, some liberties perhaps with the story. But in the main and the whole, it, it does a pretty good job of, of telling the story. You, you, can, you can do worse. Um, some examples of confrontation. I'm just going to take it right from the 95 Theses. Again, you can see why Luther got into trouble, why he, why he was bold, why the gospel made him bold, why the gospel made him bold. And so here's his complaints against the church of the day. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. That sounds like a really bold word. And again, he's not in any way the people who bought the letters, right? The, I told you last night, 90, 95% of the people are peasants, illiterate. They're, I mean, who has the knowledge of the, in, in, the, in this culture? Who possesses the knowledge? The church, right? They, 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 have all, they have all the power, of course. And so he's not blaming those folks, but the teachers who should know better. He has no, no hesitation saying, no, eternally damned, because you are teaching a false gospel. You are teaching that works makes you right with God, and that is damning to people's souls. That is dangerous, and therefore, he doesn't hesitate to call that into question, to confront it. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. In other words, um, um, what are your good works for? Good works aren't for God. God's doing fine without your good works. Your neighbor needs them. It's creation. It's the world. Uh, and I've taken this also, I think, just, just to kind of shake things up a little bit with my students because there's such an, and, and I welcome it, there's such an, an interest, of course, in, in the environment, and there should be, in the care of creation. I'm also always careful to say that good works are not only for your neighbor but also for creation. And we need to think about what it means to take care of creation as well. And th- I think that's an important part of um, um, how we ought to unpack this for our day and age. Confronting his own congregation and its greed. So I'm taking some examples here from the text uh, where he preached on the rich man and Lazarus. He preached on this text, I think, five times. We have at least five of his sermons. So you, you know the story, of course, of the rich man and Lazarus and, and, the, and, and Lazarus, the, the one who's named in the text, not the rich man. Interestingly enough, he gets the name, the identity. He's laying at the doorstep of the rich man while the rich man feasts. And Luther then, just to show you, Law, the law at work in Luther's preaching, some of the things he had to say about this text. So I'm quoting Luther here. And again, I know reading PowerPoint is not, just bear with me, will you? Okay. This text is addressed to the rich and arrogant people. 
of today. Unfortunately, as we know, such people most often think themselves pious and without greed. So he's preaching to his Wittenberg congregation. There are all sorts of people there. There are poor people, peasants. There's the merchant class. There's the nobility. They're all mixed in together, right? But people with wealth and influence and power are there as well. Chronic was probably there, the mayor. Huh? Greed nowadays has come to be viewed as talented, smart, careful stewardship. It, greed, is so dressed up and polished as no longer to be denominated as such, says Luther. Neither prince nor peasant, nobleman nor average citizen is any longer considered greedy, but only upstanding. He's dripping with sarcasm here, folks. The common consensus being that the man who prudently provides for himself is a resourceful person who knows how to take care of himself. The same hold true for other sins. Pride is no longer pride or sin, but honor. The proud man is no longer deemed arrogant, but honorable, a commanding person, worthy of respect, a credit to his generation. Thus, says Luther, there are no longer any sinners in the world, but God have mercy. The world is full of holy people. Okay? I mean, think about it. You're listening to that. The world is full of holy people. There's no longer any greed in the world. There's no longer any pride in the world. And again, throughout this sermon, he just rings the changes, doesn't hesitate to call it into question. I know as preachers, it's hard. It's really hard. You've got to live with these people. They pay us. Um, there's a transaction there. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And we do, as we shall see. We want to be liked, and that's hard too. But let me stop here for a moment and ask you, what about preaching the law? How do you think about that? Um, do we soft-pedal it? Um, how do you handle that as you think about putting together a text for a Sunday sermon? Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, there's a sense, too, in which I think it's right. There's a sense in which people do like a little bit of the law because, you know, they hear the scriptures read. They know there's law there. They know that in some sense they haven't lived up to what they're... But, but, they, but not too much, isn't it? It's, I mean, there, there's a sense in which... Yeah, that's good. That's, that's the irony, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's also this dynamic is, <sighs> I worry sometimes, and this will be a, I'm from the Lutheran tradition, and so there's, it, there, there's a, I'm going against some of the things I think that happened, um, 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 Walther's book called Law and Gospel, which was famous in the 19th and early 20th century and used by many, many preachers as a form, and it became a formula. There's a sense in which, we can even attempt by means of the law to bring the gospel under control and to tame it. What I mean by that is there's a sense in which law and gospel can be really formulaic. Well, you preach the law, and then once you've done that, then you give them the gospel, which sounds okay, but there's a sense in which people then say, okay, I have to acknowledge how bad I am, and then once I do that, then I get the good news. And it tends to be something that we can, can control. And I think, I mean, the devil's insidious. I mean, very crafty. There's a sense in which, isn't it true that, 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 uh, that, that the gospel sometimes is the thing that preaches or enables true repentance? So it's not always law and gospel. Sometimes the gospel itself, um, in fact, is the best way of enabling someone to repent or causing someone to repent. I'll give you a story from my own life. Sorry, but <laughs> a true story happens to be. So back when I was actually at Luther Seminary, uh, back in 1984, well, a long time ago, uh, my wife and I were living in student housing. And um, my wife was a, was a nurse, and she had a job interview. Um, uh, I think it was... Uh, for a, a public health nurse position that she really wanted in, in the city of Roseville, which, if you know, Minneapolis is a northern suburb. Anyway, that's irrelevant detail. Um, um, and, and, and her job interview was 4 o'clock that afternoon. And I, I had scheduled a golf game. 
Okay, we had one car. This, we, we needed this job. She needed to get this job, okay? Uh, and I had one car, we had one car, and I was, out, I was out with a good buddy. I was out golfing, and I said, yeah, Annie, I'll be home by 3.30, no problem. And, you know, you can obviously take the car to get to the job interview because this is really important. And uh, I got out golfing, got playing, and uh, didn't have the watch on. And uh, I looked at the watch, and it was like 4.10. Still on the golf of all things on the golf course, and I think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did this. You know, I remember rushing, leaving the course. My buddy on the course going, "What the heck's going on here?" Getting in the car, rushing home. You know, of course, it was way too late. I got home probably 4:30, quarter to five or something, and just feeling horrible, horrible. And I opened the door. You know, kind of went into the apartment. Annie, I'm sorry. I can't believe I did this. It's horrible. I screwed up. I got, I got, I lost track of the time on the course, you know. And I was expecting, well, let me have it, because I deserved it. You know what she did? She came up and gave me a hug, and she said, "Mark, I know that's. I don't know what happened, but I know you didn't mean this to happen." And she gave me a hug. Why do you think I felt? Anything but that. <laughs> then I felt like a real dog. I'm serious. I mean, the go- right? The gospel revealed me. Huh? Oh, my goodness. No, no. Punish me in some ways. Give me a list of chores to do. Let me have it. Yell at me. I deserve it. She forgave me. She forgave me. And, that, and all of a sudden, I got revealed. I mean, there's that dimension, right, where the, the, the gospel reveals us, too. I mean, the dynamic's complicated. So I would just be cautious about this formula, law and then gospel. The gospel, in some sense, reveals who we are. And, I mean, it's, it's complicated. Or what we think is the pure gospel sometimes is the law. One more example, a friend of mine um, who's uh, in a wheelchair was um, being wheeled into uh, a shopping mall and, um, by, his, by his buddy. Uh, and uh, he got into the shopping mall and uh, going through the door, another guy coming out comes up and taps him on the, on the shoulder. And he says, hey, Jesus loves you. And then he scoots off. Jesus loves you sounds like pure gospel, right? How did my friend in the chair take it? Pure law, you poor SOB, stuck in that chair. Too bad for you, but Jesus loves you. I mean, it was pure law. I mean, get it? The dynamic, it's, I mean, that, that's, that's the thing that makes preaching even more complicated is that, is, is that there's a dance going on here. You're never quite sure how those words, I mean, those words are going to, um, it's, it's, it's not a invitation to be skeptical at all, but, but it's a recognition that the Spirit works in ways that, um, well, let me stop talking. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? Who had their hands up? Right. 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 And it will kill, though. Right. Right. And as a result, the people don't know how dead they really are. Yeah. And that's a deadly form of righteousness. No, I agree. Yes. Yes. That's right. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. The desire for control is such that, you know, and I'm, all, I'm so thankful for that one incident. I tell that story a lot because it, and the more, and the more you think about it, the, 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 it's, it's incredible. The desire, our, our dear desire to hold on for dear life, because otherwise it's the end of us, which of course is the point. <laughs> it should be the end of us. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's so ironic because those of us here who think we get law and gospel, and I think we do, <laughs> but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, we should be careful. Maybe that's what the devil wants us to do is get it. <laughs> think about it. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a topsy-turvy world. Um, um, I'm surprised, I, I use the Satan and devil freely, because Luther did, right? Um, um, there's a power out there that is seeking to wrench us away from Christ, and it's clever. It's it's um, 
it's subtle, uh, and unless we're aware of it, um, it will undermine us. Even in, and it will it will undermine us. Let's not let's not forget it. It will, but it doesn't have the last word. That's the beauty. So the preacher must also confront the afflict, comfort the afflicted. Sorry, afflict the comfortable. You've heard all that, okay? And again, for Luther, of course, the great exchange is, is central. Um, based in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Luther ringing the changes on this theme. And this is in his sermons. Think about this. Jesus became the greatest sinner of all time. He says things like that. I mean, you can imagine in his day and age, in our day and age, how that upsets things. That gets people just heads spinning. Jesus is the greatest sinner who ever lived. Uh, and for Luther, that was so true. And ringing the changes on that. Fleming Rutledge, by the way, and we talked about her a little bit last night, she gets that in a, in a very good way. And in, in her sermons, that comes across again and again and again. I've always appreciated her, both devotionally and some of the books that she's written. Um, some of you may, another resource on this, and Jesus Becoming the Great Sinner. Um, some of you have heard of the Missouri Synod. He's now dead, but uh, Missouri Synod. No, actually, he left the Missouri Synod. Rooted in the Missouri Synod and went to the, again, Luther an alphabet soup here, excuse me a bit, but um, he left the Missouri Senate and entered the, um, um, what was the, AELC, very well, very well done, yes, the, the Missouri in exile. Bob Bertram, Robert Bertram has written, and if you, if, you, if you check out some of his work, he's done a really nice job on this, on the great exchange, on Jesus as the greatest sinner, some great stuff on that, um, been very helpful. Comfort, preaching the great exchange. When quoting Luther, for if I look at my sins, they will destroy me. Therefore, I must look to Christ, who has taken my sins upon himself, crushed the head of the serpent, and become the blessing. Now they no longer burden my conscience, but rest upon Christ, whom they desire to destroy. Let us see how they treat him. For Luther, it's a great drama. They hurl him to the ground. They kill him. Oh, God, where now is Christ my Savior? But then God appears, delivers Christ, and makes him alive. What now has become of sin? There it lies under his feet. If I then cling to this, I have a cheerful conscience like Christ, because I am without sin. Now I can defy death, the devil, and sin to do me any harm. I often put this painting up. As an example, it's an anachronistic painting because it was done before Luther, but um, he gets it. This is Matthias Grunewald, and he, this is a fa his famous painting of the crucifixion. And, um, well, what do you see? Again, it's a little fuzzy. Sorry about that. I think it's... A, you see John the Baptist again, of course, pointing. Notice the length of his finger. It's unnaturally long. I love that, huh? He's pointing again to Christ crucified. Of course, the scriptures are open. But the point of the scriptures is this. What else do you see? I'm talking too much, sorry. Yeah, the lamb. You have the lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, very good. It's very, very hairy. <laughs> As it should be, right? Where is he? Oh, there. This, this read out of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, he left a Starbucks there. Who, who knew? Grunewald, shame on you. Sloppy of you. Sloppy. Sloppy. So you have the elongated body of Christ. Now, what I think, you know, notice the, the wood on the cross is bent downward. He's truly bearing the sin of the world. This painting hung in a hospice, basically, in France in the late part of the 15th and early part of the 16th century. It was where people went with skin diseases, diseases of the plague, caused by the plague, and other skin diseases, and basically it was the end point. Uh, they weren't getting out. They all knew it. And this hung in the middle of this hospital. Basically, it was also a convent as well where the nuns took care of these sick people at the end stage of their life. And Grunewald has painted Jesus with the skin disease, the skin disease itself. So when they looked upon Jesus, I mean, he had what they had. He became 
what they were. I mean, the one taking upon himself the sin of the world. So, uh, again, as a teaching tool, Grunewald's crucifixion, which some of you may know, also hung above the desk of the great Swiss theologian, Karl Barth. Uh, and as he wrote and as he reflected, Grunewald's painting was always nearby. The demonic trinity has freed me from sin, death, and the power of the devil, robbed of the gift of the present. And again, uh, all the talk today about mindfulness, I get it, okay? Um, but I think in the Christian tradition, we have, our, we have a way of talking about Christ being present um, um, that I think could be a great gift to the desire for <laughs> being in the present. And I mean by it this, um, um, Luther often uses, and you probably know this, those of you who know a little bit about Luther, he's off talking, he kind of just elides sin, death, and the devil. He's always talking about sin, death, and the devil. Sin, and we, you know, you read it and you kind of go, well, okay, yeah, Luther's talking about sin, death, and the devil again. But stop and unpack it a little bit. Sin, death, and the devil. What does he really mean by that? By sin, of course, he's talking about the past in some sense. Guilt and anger. What has been done to us. What we've done to others. And how that robs us of the present. Because we get caught up in the past, right? And we sort of ruminate on what was done to us by someone. Or what we did to others. Uh, the guilt part of it. And in a, in a sense, then, the past then takes over. And it, we, we're no longer living in the present. That's the sin part, I would argue. And then you have sin, death, and the devil. Death is the future part, where we worry about um, what's going to happen to us or what might happen or what we might not do. Fear rules us, right? And we're so stuck in our anxiety and our worry. I talked talk to you last night. 30 to 40% of our students in colleges and university are on anti-anxiety medication. I mean, they are petrified of the future. They are focused on the future and worried about it, and it controls them. And what happens then, that worry and control also takes you out of the present, right? So sin, death, and the devil, of course, is the force that then works on us to either get us stuck in the past or stuck in the future, and we lose the present. And when you lose the present, then you're caught up in your own stuff. It's all about you. You're not much used to your neighbor or creation either. Uh, so when Luther talks about sin, death, and the devil, the demonic trinity, what he's really talking about is we lose the present tense of faith. Christ returns us to the present. He makes us, in a way, useful for the neighbor and for creation. That's what faith does. It restores creation to the way it's supposed to be. It restores us to the way we're supposed to be. And therefore, sin, death, and the devil, yeah, it sounds formulaic, but if you really unpack it a little bit, it's, it's, it, 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 there's a time dimension going on here. And the way faith then restores us to the present, if you will. So that's Christian mindfulness, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and I think it's much more profound than any other kind of mindfulness, which, as we know, is really law-based. It's stuff you got to do. It's a formula you need to apply to your life, blah, blah, blah. You need to practice it incessantly. Well, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, not really, I think it's shallow, most of it, um, because it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't really wrestle with the depths of what it means to be a human being. Questions, comments, does that make sense? The, the present tense of faith. When you read sin, death, and the devil, stop. What, what's he, Luther, when Luther's talking, he's really talking about how we lose the sense of the beauty of life, the joy of life, because we get caught up in guilt and anger or worry and anxiety and fear. Yeah. That's good, yeah. Yeah, and of course the whole word salvation which is misunderstood, is from the Latin word solvus, which means to be made whole. It's not just a future word. It's a present tense word. You're made whole. You're made what you're supposed to be. You're retort the image of God, right thing? I mean, um, 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 yeah, there's just, um, there's, there, there's something there. And so, anyway, my colleagues in the psychology department at my university are going all crazy on mindfulness and I'm <laughs> so, my, 
just you know a little bit of background. I'm I'm grinding on something here. Okay. Anyway, the demonic trinity. Uh, the present. Oh, by the other thing, Paul. How about that word now? Look at the, how the word now is sprinkled throughout the Pauline letters. I mean, we saw it last night. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be a look at, at the use of is, is the Greek nun, N-U-N? No, in the Latin. Uh, anyway, um, it, 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 what, what is it? Yeah, 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 of course. And uh, it's Roman 5, yeah. Now, now, now. There, there's, a, there's a now. There's a now. Think about it. It's amazing. Of course, we all know, right? Those little words make all the difference as we look at Scripture. Preaching is a battleground. The sermon is not for the classroom. It is actually a field of battle. Heiko Obermann brought this forth, you know, in his great, great biography of Luther. He talks about how Luther not only did not minimize the devil, as will happen then from the Reformation onward, the devil becomes, you know, something superstitious, something, a hangover from the Middle Ages, doesn't really belong anymore. We're more sophisticated than that. Opermann points out Luther not only did not minimize the devil, he increased an awareness of the devil <laughs> in his preaching and his teaching and in his thought. For Luther, the sermon is an apocalyptic event involving the powers of heaven and hell. It is a key moment in a continuing battle between God and Satan. That's what's going on then. When you, if you think about it, when you climb into the pulpit, it is an event. It's a battleground. I know. Preaching is a dangerous task because where Christ appears, so does the devil. The goal is to make listeners hear the word of God and rent asunder the powers of evil and darkness. Again, preaching is not information about God. It is an event where Christ and all his saving power is set loose. Uh, you know, like in Mark 15, the crucifixion scene where when Jesus dies, what happens to the curtain of the temple? Yeah, it's not parted. It's ripped. And how is it ripped? From top to bottom. No human did it. It's ripped from top to bottom. Um, the powers of darkness then are sent running, huh? The burden of preaching. Let's talk a little bit about that too because Luther knew about that as well. Lest we set him up in kind of this heroic mode, kind of unapproachable. In 1529, Luther was angry at the way Christian liberty was being misunderstood and abused. So remember, of course, so Luther's preaching and teaching. In 1520, 21, he's excommunicated, and now he's in Wittenberg, and in Wittenberg he's um, um, sort of nurturing the Reformation, and by 1529, he's a little disgusted with his people. He frankly tells his people that he had no desire, quote-unquote, to be the shepherd of such pigs. During Advent in the same year, he had reached the end of the line. Despite his admonitions, the people kept sinning publicly more and more. For most of the first three months of 1530, he more or less stopped preaching, despite the pleas of his colleagues and his prince, who was his employer, who paid his salary, plead, pled with Luther to keep at it. Um, Martin Breck's great biography of Luther, three-volume biography, goes into this in some detail. Yeah, he quit preaching for three months because he couldn't take it anymore. One example, and this is a reason why he got frustrated, the, re the request for an offering for the poor in 1530. So the deacons in the Wittenberg church would go literally door to door in the town, knock on people's doors, you can imagine this, and ask for money for the sake of the poor people. Okay? And... Here's Luther commenting on what happened. And this, again, gives you an illustration of why he got frustrated. This week we are asking for an offering. I hear that the people will not give the collectors anything and turn them away. Thanks be to God that you unthankful people are so stingy with contributions and give nothing, but with foul words chase away the deacons. You absolutely unthankful beasts, unworthy of the gospel. If you do not repent, I will stop preaching to you. The office of preaching, and again, this is a different sermon, but commenting on it. The off, uh, this is, actually isn't a sermon. This is from the table talk. The office of preaching is an arduous office. If I could come down with a good conscience, I would rather be stretched upon a wheel or carry stones than preach one sermon. For anyone in this office will always be plagued. The townsmen, 
The fellows who, when they have read one book, are full of the Holy Spirit, they're the worst. (laughs) If I were to follow my own impulse, I would say, let the damn devil be your preacher. (laughs) So I've often thought, but I cannot bring myself to do it. Isn't that precious, though? (laughs) They've read one book and are full of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And then a warning about the desire for popularity, again from the tishrade and the table talk. There's no greater evil or poison than vainglory. She is the bride of the devil and works great harm in the preacher. Sometimes we think, I must preach so that the people will say, this preacher will turn out to be a fine man. He knows how to hit the nail on the head, and I've never heard it put this way. And so the preacher is puffed up with pride, tickled with praise, and imagines he is an ox when he is really scarcely a toad. Here is what happens next, says Luther. He now must be careful not to spoil things with the people. Because they praise him, he in turn must praise them. So they praise one another until one goes to the devil with the other. Oh, yeah. So in other words, I, the desire to be liked, right? And you end up praising, it becomes a mutual admiration society, and then we know it's all lost. He knew the task wasn't easy. I have often preached so poorly that I have disgraced myself and said to myself, shame on you. What kind of sermon was that? (laughs) No. Perhaps it is fitting to end with Luther's sacristy prayer. And I think this is fitting because I think it places places us well within the, the realm of what we're about when we preach. Oh, Lord God, dear Father in heaven, I am indeed unworthy of the office of ministry in which I am to make known thy glory and serve this congregation. But you have appointed me to be a pastor and a teacher, and the people are in need of teaching and instruction. Be my helper and let your holy angels attend to me. And if you are pleased to accomplish anything through me, may it be to your glory and not to mine. I mean, I think it's beautiful before you go into the pulpit. May it be to your glory and not to thine, the desire to be liked. Uh, again, all the... So, in summation here, Luther's vocation or the calling of a preacher, I mean, he knew this intimately well. It was a calling, right, both to confront, to challenge, to call into question the law. Obviously, it's preeminently a office where we are to preach the gospel, that word of forgiveness that takes us out of ourselves and makes us realize that we worship a God who actually loves the unlovable, namely us and our people. Uh, it's a hard office. It's, it's difficult. Those who are outside of it will never understand it. Even those closest to us will never fully, completely understand it. But with God's grace and God's mercy, um, it is a high and important calling and one through which then we equip others in their callings and vocations for God's good earth. Um, Thank you.